We're talking through the book of James um, for the rest of the month of July. And uh, how many of you enjoyed my wife last week, right? Come on. I read through and, and listened to some of it. I didn't listen to all of it, but I kind of helped her work out, work out the message. And um, we, we've, been, we've been looking at the book of James because it's like one of the, one of the first books that were written to the uh, New Testament believers. Now, James was the half-brother of Jesus. In other words, he grew up with Jesus. So how many of you knew that um, if James became a believer in Jesus as the Messiah and he bowed his knee to him as Lord, that there must have been something real about Jesus? Because <laughs> I, I defy each of you who tell me that you would just somewhere just bow your knee to your brother and sister when they claim to be some, something. There had to be something special about Jesus for his half-brother who knew him, grew up with him, to go and say, I want to submit my life in service to you. Um, and, uh, and, and he became a prominent leader when the um, apostles like Peter and, 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 and um, John and them started moving out of Jerusalem to other areas to plant more churches. And uh, he was a rock and he was a, a, a pillar of the, of the Jerusalem church. So his, his audience was mostly Jewish, um, but he did write with Christians in mind, new um, you know, transformed believers, uh, Christian, not Jews necessarily, wrote with Christians in mind. And the book of James is an incredible um, book. It has, it has something like uh, 12 um, little teachings on just practical Christian living that you can go and you can take the, the, the five chapters of, 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 of James and go and study them and they will add in, in incredible value to your lifestyle as a Christian. Um, and so it's not necessarily a story that uh, a book that tells the stories of anybody or the apostles or their doings. It's it's basically addressing them and say, "This is how you do it. Here are some really important things that has to be a part of a Christian's lifestyle." And um, and last week we 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 learned about just um, one of the things uh, that that we as as Christians are actually guaranteed is is that we will walk through trials. And we will walk through, and we will experience temptation, and that those things are different. Um, and, uh, and, and James gives us incredible ways of how to do that. Uh, but one of some of my favorite statements from last week was this, is that God doesn't use temptation to test us. God never uses temptation to test us. I, I, I far too often hear people say, you know what, I feel like you know, this temptation is meant to teach me something that God wants me to know. Now, God teaches us through his word, through the book of James. <laughs> he don't need to tempt you. He's going to talk to you. He's going to tell you straight as it is. He's going to guide you exactly how he wants you to walk. He don't need you to try and figure things out according to how circumstances are playing itself out in your life. And you might feel tempted to do certain things or not do certain things. God just talks straight. He says to you, this is how I want it, and this is how it is. And that because I'm the Lord of your life, I expect you to walk in obedience to this. Um, so he speaks to his word, um, not through our feelings. Now, our feelings might come in alignment with his word. That's very true. And hopefully that does happen. But feelings are very bad leaders. They're actually just good to tell you where you're at. And from where you should start and start growing and start changing and start adjusting to God's word. But we need to allow the word of God to be the, the thing that leads us. And then another statement um, was made was, when obeying God leads us to facing trial, trials, because sometimes it does, doesn't it? 
You feel God lays on your heart to do something and you go and you obey and you do it and oh man, you get hit with some, <laughs> some hardship because of it. You try to uh, you know, um, stand up for something and oh my goodness, you got backlash big time. How many of you have experienced that maybe online? Um, sometimes when God lays something on our heart, it leads directly into a trial. We're going to get tested. And, but here's the thing you need to know is whenever that happens, it always also presents an opportunity for us to be promote, promoted, never for us to be harmed. Okay, when, 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 when God's uh, uh, command leads you to a trial, it's because on the other side of that, uh, of that successful trial, uh, of living through that trial successfully, is God's promotion. And, and by promotion, I don't mean money. I just mean that you are starting to live life with greater authority, with greater understanding and victory in your Christian walk over the things of this world. And you start to walk stably and st steadfastly in his calling. Um, and then, and then uh, the counter thought there was that, but if we're double-minded, trials hurt us. So the last thing you must do in a trial is doubt. Okay, <laughs> that's the last thing you must do. Just hold on to your faith in the trial. When you're out of a trial and you need to try to figure things out, that's somebody, wise man once told me, don't change direction when you're in the dark. Don't let, <laughs> yeah, it's like really like, you know, because where do I go from? Where did I come from? I have no idea. You lose weight completely. So wait till you're in the light and then you know where you are. So you have reference from where you've turned to another direction. When you're going through a trial, don't try and doubt the theology and the, and the, and the, and the, and the convictions that, that you have gained up to that point. Just grab a hold of it, stick with it until you're out of the trial, and then you start saying, okay, Lord, is there something that I missed or is there something new that I must learn? Okay, and then here's the, other, the last one is trials are not from God, but within every trial is an invitation to intimacy. Did you remember that? Within every trial is an invitation to in intimacy. And here's a comment I, I, I want to make on James 1.4 that says, let patience or steadfastness or endurance, different translations call the different things. Let patience, steadfastness or endurance, same word, three different ways the Bible translates it, have its perfect work in you so that you may be complete and lacking nothing. Intimacy is the best habitat for developing maturity. Write that down, put it on your fridge. It's the best habitat for maturity to grow in your life. So what does that mean? God wants you to know Him intimately. I describe intimately as this. It's love expressed in proximity. Intimacy denotes a proximity. It means that there's a closeness. You can't have intimacy with somebody if you are distant from them especially not emotionally, right? So um, <clears throat> to offer intimacy, therefore, becomes if you're demonstrating love and proximity, you are offering intimacy. And that's what God wants to do for every single one of us. He wants to come into your life, become a part of your life, um, and then offer His thereness, His presence, His guidance for you in the midst of every part of your life. And as much as you are willing to receive that, okay, intimacy, that's when you experience love demonstrated in proximity. That's when you experience intimacy. If you allow him into your workplace, if you allow him into your 
relationships, into your school, if you allow them into your social circles, if you allow them into your, into your marriage, that intimacy is experienced and that creates the environment in which we can grow to maturity. And when we are fully mature, we will be complete, lacking nothing. And that's what God wants us. He wants all of us to live Christ-centered lives where the image of Christ is built in all of us, right? Right? Come on now. But the choice is yours if you're going to take it. That offer of intimacy. I often tell my kids this. If you argue and justify, you just stay the same. But if you listen and consider, there's a chance that you might grow. There's a chance that you might change. There's a chance that you might mature. And so often we read and hear things from the Bible to, to, uh, you know, said to us or read to us, and we go, yes, but what about this? Well, as long as you argue and justify, you will never change. And so let the Word of God come. The Bible says the implanted Word is able to transform us. It's when we receive the Word to come inside of our hearts and help us reconsider things. That's when we start growing. So let's jump into James 2 today and focus on the two major themes of the book of James 2. And that's partiality and faith. Partiality and faith. And so I'm encouraging all of us to read through James during this time. Um, James has a couple of uh, interesting theological uh, situations uh, that often we don't uh, interpret correctly. And so uh, while we're talking through it, we'll hit on those things. But these two themes are handled um, um, very, very directly and very simply in the book of James. And I'm going to try and not complicate it, but just um, add some food for thought to what it is saying. All right. So here's a question for you. Do you knowingly or unknowingly hold partiality in your heart? Let me read from us, for us from James 2. Um, I'm just going to read a couple of verses, make a couple of comments as we do when we kind of you know, talk through, preach through a book of the Bible. Verse 1 says this, My brothers and my implication sisters as well, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. First off, he is telling us that there is a standard that we are to live by because we are living our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are living our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and not in any other faith figure, here is the reality that we come under. This is what he's asked of us because we are Christians. And he calls our Lord the Lord of glory, which really talks to the weightiness of God. It means that when God's fullness is expressed in a situation, his glory comes. I've said this to you guys before. But it's like wet clay. When you take a mold and you press it onto wet clay, the mold assumes the form of the, uh, sorry, the clay assumes the form of the mold. That is what happens when the glory of God comes on us. Now, I know some of you might have come from hyper-charismaniac backgrounds. And you think that the glory of Lord is the frissons that appears on your arms when you feel that feeling? <laughs> Biblically speaking, that is called a feeling. <laughs> but the glory of the Lord is when His image impresses on your soul to such a degree that you start looking like Him. 
You start thinking like him, start acting like him. That is what happened when his glory comes. So when we sing, show me your glory, let your glory come, what we're saying is in, in actual fact, Lord, change us. Change us to look and become like you. Change us to think like you. Change us to reason like you. Change us to act like you. Because we have committed our lives to serving you who is the king of glory. And God's glory is that of perfection and holiness. And so it's not just any old standard. We have committed to the Lord Jesus Christ our faith. And therefore, we are called on to not live with any form of partiality in our hearts and minds. Now, we are naturally drawn toward people that either are similar to us or that can benefit us right? That's kind of natural to us. And so um, it's, it's some of it is just fine. You know, I have rapport with certain people and I struggle to connect with other people. Maybe it's a personality thing. Maybe it's an interest thing. Um, but at the end of the day, this is not just about personality and this is not just about how I feel, you know, uh, comfort wise this is what is happening in the heart of hearts when i look at you do i value you the same as i value another person and do i see the same image of god in you as i do in the people that i am more comfortable naturally connecting with he's not saying look you have to be friends with everybody you have to have the you know deepest relationships with everybody but he's saying at the end of the day when it comes down to looking at people, do we value them the same? Do we value them all the same? Because that is certainly how God treats humanity. Um, and so then he goes on and talks about, you know, how we are um, often biased when it comes to the function of our faith. When we are having to serve people, when we're having to look after people and care for people, we... Let partiality lead us instead of letting the Holy Spirit's love for all mankind lead us. And so what he is describing is a scenario where that, where that might happen in a church. In verse 2 it says this, For um, if a man wearing a gold ring or fine clothes come into your assembly, uh, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, saying, You sit here in a good place, and to the poor man, you say, Stand over there or sit here at my feet, have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Today, we don't get a whole bunch of celebrities attending and visiting our church here. All right, so uh, we have not yet had anybody that is famous in the world's eyes. Uh, in my time being here, come visit at our church here. Nor have we had some, you know, president or something showed up and said, I want to go to OSC Crowley. But may happen one day. I'm not closing the door to that. But we have not had that happen. And so it's almost like easy to go like, oh, no, we treat everybody the same. And by and large, that's the testimony of our church, right? Most of you who have come in here have experienced the same thing that most of us have experienced, and that is that it is a welcoming church. People accept you for who you are. They love you, and, they and, 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 you are, and they're glad that you are here, actually. So for me, we need, to, we need to bring this home a little better than just going, oh, psh, you know, we don't do that. You can sit where you want. And by the way, there are no like seats here. You know, that are, that are better than other seats. The further forwarder you sit, the more holy you are, right? 
So, so Trevor and Jesse, y'all have like the, you know, the haloiest of us all here today. <laughs> the further back you sit, the more, you know, reprobate and rebellious you are. No, that's a school hall or a school bus. That is a mark. Sit down. <laughs> that's a school bus. That's not our church. We're not, we want you on the bus, but the proverbial bus, not the school bus. Um, you can sit anywhere when you come in. There is no holy seats. Nobody has bought nothing yet. Um, talk to me afterwards if you do want one. <laughs> you know, we're about to, to, you know, not about, but we're, we're in the process of, of, of uh, uh, developing a plan and, and, and the things for our own building. And uh, um, so at some point you are going to buy a seat, but you're going to donate that seat, okay? You're not gonna <laughs> this is my seat. I bought this. Here's my receipt. Just saying. You want, who said that? <laughs> Take it to the principal's office. <laughs> yeah, we are spoiled in this cinema, let me tell you that, with, when it comes to seating. I'm going to buy those seats that keep you all awake, because I know there are these culprits in my, in, my, in my fellowship here. I'm just kidding. If you need to sleep, just rest in the Lord. You're, you're welcome. Just don't snore. It distracts people. <laughs> <laughs> so let us test our hearts here today. You know, do we, maybe not here in church, but do we really value people the same in our own hearts? In the temple of our own hearts, do we have any partiality toward any people that there might be? It's test to see, maybe, do we seem to rejoice more when a celebrity becomes a Christian than when a homeless person becomes a Christian? Are we, <laughs> that one hit up. Uh, you know, are we more excited about that? Do we post on Instagram, oh, did y'all see this guy came to the Lord? But when the guy who came off the street gave his life to Jesus, there's hardly any mention. Is that the case? Would that be for us like that? How about the willingness to help people that are of good standing in the community versus helping people that are maybe a, a little more destitute and more needy? James is actually challenging our inner motives. He's, he's asking us to investigate our own hearts and make sure that we do not fall into the trap that so often happens when we start walking in the flesh and we start knowing people according to the flesh rather than according to the image of God and the call of God on their lives. Verse 5 says this, listen, my brothers and my sisters. I'm going to just say that every time. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Have God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. Now throughout the book of James, you will see him actually make references to a couple of things. Because he's, he's the half-brother of Jesus, he was, he was very influenced by obviously the Hebrew Torah. Um, but then Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, James quotes from that quite often. And here he actually makes mention of one of Jesus' um, Beatitudes. Blessed is Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. 
And he quotes Jesus, and he also quotes from Proverbs quite uh, many times. Um, and in this, in this portion of Scripture, what he's, what he's trying to relate here is not that God chose the poor and he didn't choose the rich. Uh, he actually tries to relate more to the practicality of when we value people according to physical things, according to natural things, we end up actually offending God. We end up offending God because God has, has, has chosen everybody. And he has actually said that, look, people who are not necessarily strong financially have to find their strength somewhere else. And they're often the ones who grow in faith more than the ones who are of good and you know, self-ability, self self-providing means. So why would you look down on them where even God has said, look, these people sometimes catch the kingdom of God quicker than all of y'all who have means. They learn about the unconditional love and they learn about the grace of God way quicker and faster. Why? Because they have nothing to give back to God and yet he keeps pursuing them. He keeps you know, uh, um, upholding them. And they have to learn to, 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 to step into a kingdom mindset where I am a son because he loves me for who I am, not because I can give money or benefit or influence to the church. But so often when we look at society, we go, man, I wish that person can become a Christian because if he becomes a Christian, wow, wouldn't that mean a lot for our church? Wouldn't the benefit be so good to us? And he's saying that is not a great attitude to have. Because these are often the people that dishonor God. And yet we try to prefer them over those who might even get it faster, get it quicker. So often we value distant people because we actually desire, to de desire for them to be a benefit to us. We value them more than those who are actually already present, that God has actually already placed close to us, placed around us. There is a value to anybody and everybody that God has placed around you. And, and so I want to say this to you who are here. Inasmuch as our church loves reaching lost people and want to see people come into family, and we value each and every one of you. That is why we try our best to help all of us walk a journey of spiritual development, spiritual formation by taking steps of growth in their walk with God. That is why we have set up a path for growth that we want each and every one of you to engage in so that you might um, understand, sorry, know God and understand the call that he has on your life and participate in this community in such a way. We value every person here, but we want you to build a Christ-centered life because we know the, the absolute desire of God to walk with us in that way, that it leads to victory in our own lives. It leads to us also being able to then share that love with people that are around us. So don't despise the people that are already around you. And I'm not talking about in the seats next to you right now. 
I'm talking about the people at your work, the people in your social circles, the people in your club, the people in your wherever you go. Actually, those people were placed there for you to be able to demonstrate the kingdom of God to them. But sometimes we think, mm, is there going to be a re return on my investment here? <laughs> and James is telling us we ought not to think like that. We need to see the value in every single person and not be holding back anything from anybody that we are able to give something to. But sometimes we have it also in reverse. And James was contextualizing this issue to the people there. And, and let me take some liberty and just contextualize for us here. Let me ask you, what is your attitude toward the rich? Because sometimes we end up despising the rich and we value the poor more. And both of these things are actually not the, the, the attitude that Christ wants in our hearts. He wants us to value all and have a desire to see all of them step into a Christ-centered relationship. So often you find when you come into church environments or, you know, club environments, etc., that, you know, there are cliques. Um, and we work hard and we have a, you know, a, a mindset of like, you know, being outward focused and being, you know, intentional about connecting with people so that it's not experienced as that there is a bunch of cliques in this church that you can't get involved in as a new person coming in. But let me just say this, that sometimes it does happen. And when it happens, it's because the current members become so comfortable with their place in the social structure that they fear letting others in might upset their value or their view of themselves within the hierarchy of, you know, whatever there is. Let me just say that that is utterly unbiblical and against the heart of God. And in the beginning, I made the statement that we're not building a church around a pastor. We're building a church around people. And so um, I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that. But that comes into play here. Sometimes, though, People come, you come into a new environment and, and you're not, you're not, dis, just, you're not um, satisfied meeting with the person next to you or the person that reaches out to you. No, you want to be connected to the who's who's of the environment. And when that doesn't happen easily, it makes you feel like, oh man, you know, this is a place that has clicks. This is a place that doesn't value new people. But both of these individuals, both of these scenarios are actually internal situations and problems of partiality. We have placed more value on certain things than on other, certain people than on other. And so I don't even, I can't even enjoy just the nice conversation that I'm having with this person here that have reached out to me or I refuse to even allow another person to become a part of this relational environment that we have here. I don't think we do too bad as a church, but I want to emphasize that this is why it's so important that we continue to be intentional about connecting with people, connecting with everybody, and connecting with anybody. Because if we don't, we will be experienced as being partial. And people might find it hard to come in and enjoy our fellowship and enjoy the vision of what God is doing among us. 
I believe sometimes we make this mistake. We have, we have grown up in the southern culture, Christian culture, to honor spiritual leaders, right? Um, and that's a beautiful thing. And, I, uh, and, and, and yet, if that's where it ends, it's not a biblical thing either. Because God did not just say to honor the, the, the one leader. He said, honor those who lead among you. And in our church, we have a plurality of leaders that goes even as far as just somebody that is walking a one-on-one journey of discipleship with you. That person is considered a leader in our church. And so what we rather experience is, or, or, or encourage people to do is to honor up, sideways, and down. Don't just try and please the person that is in leadership above you or is your, or, and, and, and when I say above, I'm not talking in value, I'm talking in function. Um, also value the person that has not been connected in any form of function in the church. If we all try to just please and get attention from the person above us, that's when the people that are beside us and the people that are supposed to come under us and grow up in function under us feel undervalued and they feel like, oh, it's just that, that that's a little in-group over there. They just, you know, they do everything and, 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 and you, can't, you can't participate really in this. And basically, the only time there's something to do is when it's a, you know, a little, a little a bone that they throw you. Let us not live like that because that is a church that is just littered with partiality in the way we view one another. Our church needs to be one where everybody is valued and everybody is, everybody's growth is encouraged and celebrated. That means we have to honor up, down, sideways, equally, and down. Verse 8 then says this. It says, if you fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And I believe that is what that says. It's love people that you would love yourself. This is what he calls the royal law. And, and it refers to that because Jesus is the king of kings, and he is the one that initiated this. Love your neighbor as you love yourself do you desire for yourself something yes well do you desire the same for the person that is next to you the neighbor across the aisle from you if we're centered around christ and not centered around a person like for instance a leader then there are multiple communities that are life-giving that can form why because christ is our leader And the values and the vision of the organization drives everybody to build towards the same ideal. And whether you're in that person's life group, but not in that person's life group, or on that dream team, but not on this dream team, has absolutely no, you know, telling. It has has no weight. Why? Because we're all building towards the same glorifying person, which is Jesus Christ. Then he goes as far as saying that in verse 9, If you show partiality, you are committing a sin. And you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Verse 10 to 11, uh, verse 10 to 13 says the following. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also says do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So then speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What's he saying here? He's speaking to Christians. 
So why is he again talking to them about the law and being transgressors of the law? He's making a point, actually. He's telling them, look, all of us used to be under the law and guilty thereof. All of us. And yet somebody valued us enough to come and redeem us from the consequence of not obeying that law. And that person is Jesus Christ. Now because each and every one of us have received that grace and that penalty being scrapped, we ought to live in the same kind of way toward those around us. We cannot withhold love and withhold goodness, withhold mercy from those around us because we were the ones who received it at first. In what he's saying there, he's basically making everybody guilty. We were all guilty of this. And yet now in Christ, we have all been set free. As people that have been set free and are now judged according to the law of liberty. Remember that how that law came about us, to us, it came through the generosity of Jesus Christ. And the fact that Jesus died equally for every single person. And if we, he died equally for every single person, we are to then, what, what verse, verse 13 says, judgment without mercy, uh, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. He's saying, look, if you're not going to judge with mercy, then mercy is going to be withheld when you are judged. And when he talks about mercy here, it's not just the mercy of the forgiveness of sins. It's the mercy of actually loving and sharing the care and value of God on people, for people, for all people. So I want to give you three reasons today why we should not show partiality. To build on this thought that James is saying that partiality is a sin. Number one, partiality is being inconsistent with God's character. It's inconsistent with God's character. In Deuteronomy 10 verse 17, it says this following, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. How often do we in the business world forget that we are Christians? I would rather choose to do business with that person who gives me a bribe or promises me more benefit than I would with the, with the person in front of me or with another person. James is challenging our motives in every part of our lives. He's not talking just, he's just contextualizing and I'm contextualizing for us here. This shouldn't stay within the four walls. Okay, today I didn't tell somebody to not sit in a certain seat and sit in another seat, so I'm good. I have no partiality. No, what about the rest of your life? (laughs) What about how you treat your employees? I like this one more, so I'm going to give them a bigger bonus. Hold up now. I like that one more, so I'm going to be more lenient on their leave structure. See, this is something that because we have become Christians now, it's incumbent upon us to be fair and impartial in every aspect of our lives. Because Jesus does not just want to be your Savior. Jesus saved you in order to be your Lord. The salvation part 
was the means to the end. The end is that he is Lord of all. And he wants your life to reflect his lordship, which means that his leadership is followed in your life in every aspect of it. Romans 12, 11, for there is no favoritism in God. There's more verses. Ephesians 6, 9, there's no favoritism. The Acts 10, verse 34, when, when Peter saw the image of, 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 um, of how God convinced him that all people are now um, in line, eligible for salvation by faith through grace, Peter said, I now know that there is no, and truly that God does not show any favoritism. Not even to people, cultures, and races do God show any favoritism. How are we doing up till now? The second point is that partiality is inconsistent with God's commands. Um, so I want to just show you a couple of Christ's commands. Did God not say that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves? Did he not say that we should let the children come to him? Did he not say that we should honor our parents? And so often we show partiality. We value one generation over another. Oh, they're the has-beens. Oh, just, y'all just step aside. It's our turn now. Ooh. <laughs> That's not the heart of God. God wants to build a multi-generational church where the fathers, the sons, and the grandsons are all valued. Where children are valued. Where the next generation is valued. Remember our talk on cynicism about the next generation? How that's a killer? Let me tell you, you will not reach the next generation with cynical remarks trying to get them to change. No, you'll just lose all your influence on them and stay frustrated. If you want to change the next generation, create hope for them. But before you can give them hope, you have to have hope in your heart for them. How does that come about? Well, if you value the fact that God placed them here in this time of existence, and He has a reason for why they showed up now, Therefore, he has a purpose for them and he has a plan for them. And within that, there is a lot of hope. And I can value this next generation. And I can let them know that I value them. Let me tell you, the people who lead the next generation are the people who show them hope and show them value. Making snarky comments about them is maybe going to make you feel good in the moment, but in the long run, you'll lose all ability to change anything that, about what is happening. So if you like to be frustrated in an old grumpy pot, that's fine. Just go make your comments on Facebook and, you know. But then, you, you know, that's about all that you're going to do. <laughs> After that, we're going to have to first fix all your mess and tell him that what he said is not true about you, even though it might be at some point in some cases true. That's not your destiny. That's not how we value and how we see you. 
And then we're going to create hope for them. And then we're going to tell them, this is what God is doing for this generation. This is what we're seeing God is doing in our, in our current times. This is why you are here now. This is why you had the experiences that you had. He's leading you. He's training you. He's preparing you for his kingdom to advance in this time and this life. Why? Because there are people out there that don't know Jesus, that don't speak the language of 50-year-olds anymore. And how are we going to reach them? If we undervalue the new languages that are forming, the new ways of expressing, the new methods of expressing and communicating. It's partiality, that's what it is. Let me ask you again, did Christ not say, love your enemies, pray for those who cause you harm, make disciples of all nations? We often just wish harm on our enemies. Um, we curse those who curse us instead of blessing those who curses us. And we wish that you know, they, would, they would just disappear or go somewhere dark and you know, warm. Um, <laughs> but that's partiality. Does that person need Jesus? <laughs> For sure he needs Jesus. How's he going to meet Jesus? Well, probably through you. At the end of the talk, we'll discuss how we do that. But did he not say make disciples of all nations? Yet we value our nation so far above every other nation. We don't even bat an eye when hundreds of thousands, even millions of people are going to hell because they've not heard the name of Jesus. It's partiality. We value the nation of Israel. Yes. Not because we love them, <laughs> but, because, but because we want Jesus to come back for us. And somehow we've connected these two. Now, if we loved Israel, we would preach Jesus' grace to Israel. The same as we would preach Jesus' grace to any other nation. We're, we're, just, we're just really messed up. That's what we are. And we need to have a serious heart check about James chapter 2. Let me go, let me go one more step, okay? So, Curl in your toes if you're afraid to get stepped on. <laughs> does, it, does it bother anybody that we have no Hispanics or Asians in our church? It's not like they're not around, guys. Does it bother anybody that we have hardly any Africans in our church? I mean, does it bother you? Or are you just like nonchalant? I don't even notice it. Because I'm colorblind. Well, that's sad. How's your black and white life going? God doesn't want us to be colorblind. He wants us to appreciate color. Value color. Enjoy color. Make this world beautiful with color. I'm just saying, it's, for me, coming from Africa, um, knowing that I'm, 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 I'm not in a, in a, in a majority non-white country but there's something about representation that we have to understand 
that if we don't even, if it's not even on our radar, then I think that statement that we make, we want to be a multicultural church, that's just a pipe dream. Because really we're partial. We're okay if we're not multicultural. We would like to be, we don't mind if we are, but we're not going to actively work for it because we value it. Let me tell you, our Savior's church values it. It's not, a, it's not just a, if it is, it is. No, if it isn't, we're going to make it. That's how we are. And so it comes back to how partial are we in every area of our life towards people. The third thing is that partiality is inconsistent with God's sacrifice. Um, the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Whoever believes in him might have eternal life. His sacrifice was so that everybody would be saved. Everybody would be saved. And so my question for us here today is, who's praying for the Taliban? Who's praying for Putin? Who's praying for Kim Jong-un? Dare I say, who's praying for Biden or Trump? <laughs> which side, depending on which side you're on. You see, if... <laughs> As Christians, we are to test our hearts carefully here and, and decide well in advance that it that doesn't matter who we encounter. We are going to value that person the same way God values that person and desire for that person and desire for their kids the same that I desire for me and what I desire for my kids. There's only one way we change people that are completely other than us to see Christ and to accept Jesus as their Lord. And that is if they start seeing us value them. So let me tell you a story about what just recently happened in South Africa. The, um, actually... Um, I don't know if there is such a thing here in the United States. There probably is. But um, in South Africa, um, these two guys, they started a church for Satanists. Um, it's called, it's, and they call it church. They have church services. They have like everything that you would, or we would do here. Um, but they have it to worship Satan, like blatantly, blatantly worship Satan, make sacrifices, the whole nine yards. Um, so the co-founder of this church recently got saved in South Africa, which is amazing. And um, <coughs> in his testimony, he says this. Um, he pointed out that there were a couple of people, a handful of Christians, that no matter what he did, consistently kept showing unconditional love to him. Knowing who he was, what he was a leader of and what he was doing on a regular basis would consistently show him unconditional love. He pointed out that they loved him during a time when he was a monster in his own words and an ugly person. So 
in May of this year, he was giving an interview on one of our uh, radio stations in Cape Town. Um, and, and after the interview, and obviously he was talking about, you know, just the church of, of Satan in South Africa and, and, and what they were doing and obviously recruiting and, and stuff like that. And so following the interview, there sort of says a woman working for the station whose, whose name he did not even say. So it's this nameless person, right? Not a person of high standing, of influence or nothing. Just this, this, this random person. This woman came to him and she demonstrated God's unex- uh, love to him in an unexpected way. Uh, she's, uh, she, she started a conversation with him and, and he told her, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe Jesus exists. Um, and, um, and then after their conversation was done, she said to him, look, um, I love you. And, and then she proceeded to hug him. <laughs> he said that that rocked me. I had just basically blasphemed everything that she has, you know, ever, ever, uh, believes in. And instead of becoming mad with me, and instead of, of, of rejecting me, she actually loved me. And he said she hugged me in a kind of way that I knew it was different. It wasn't just trying to sh- put on a show. She l- hugged me and I felt loved and valued. And he said that stayed with me, stayed with me. And he didn't give his life to the Lord there. But what happened was he was in a satanic ritual. Busy doing, a, just about to start a sacrifice to Satan. And he's calling on the spiritual world to respond. And, Je- and Jesus appears to him in a vision. And he says to Jesus, I don't believe you are real. Prove to me you are real. And he said, in that moment, Jesus flooded him with unconditional love. And I've heard this before of people who have had after-death experiences um, saying that they, they died, they weren't Christians, and, 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 and they experienced love. They experienced unconditional love. And they knew, they just knew that this was Jesus. He was true. He was real. And he connected it with that Christian lady and those other people who consistently kept unconditionally loving him. And the next day he made a meeting with his board and he told them that he's resigning because he's decided to become a Christian. If we're not going to love the unlovable, Who's going to do that? Who has it in their worldview to love the unlovable? There's no other faith that really has it in its worldview. Some people are just benevolent and they do it. But Christianity is the only worldview that explicitly asks it of its people. Show no partiality and love unconditionally. So, where does this leave us today? Um, Before I come to the challenge for the day, 
Let's move on to, to, to the last part of the book, James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26, that speaks about faith. So James 14 says, What good is it, my brothers, then if someone says to you he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then he links it to his discussion on valuing all people, especially the poor. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things they need for their body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is linking um, back to the context, um, and he unquestionably, sorry, I'm going to say that again, unquestionably links caring for people's practical needs with both our salvation identity and our commitment to treating people with impartiality. He's saying this is what Christians do. We care for people. We care for people. I often hear people say, my faith is a private matter. James says your faith might be dead. James claimed that a person who is truly saved by the grace of God will have grace enough to overflow in love works to others. Starting especially towards those who cannot benefit us back. Sorry, I'm just looking for that one statement that I need to share with you. So let me read the last verses that I want to read. 18, 19, and then 26. But some of you will say, I have faith, and you have works. James is challenging us, saying, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, that you do well, but even demons believe in God. They just don't submit to Him. And that leads them to shudder. Because they know what the consequence of not submitting to God is. Last verse says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James links this, this works um, evident faith with our salvation as Christians. And he's not, he's not challenging the theology of salvation. That, it, that salvation is obtained by grace through faith. And often people interpret James as saying that you have to um, do certain works in order to be saved. James is not challenging the theology of salvation by faith alone, but he's actually challenging the perspective that my faith doesn't have to be visible to be real. He's challenging that perspective. He's saying it has. If your faith is real, it will start showing is his conclusion. And one of the things then linking back is to it will start showing in how we value all people. How we try to uh, engage all people with the same desires we have for the people that we deem to be our people. And that could just be a social construct. 
doesn't even have to be a, 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 a political construct or a ethical, a, ethnicity construct. It can just be like, oh, you know, me and my friends here, we don't value those kids over there. No, he's saying, if you have real faith, it'll result in you valuing every kid on the playground. So I believe the application for us here is, is first that we need to start building lives around Christ's objectives. Because his standard, we're called to live according to his standard, right? And he wants us to live like that in every area of our lives, professionally, socially, leisurely. Um, he wants every area of our life to start reflecting his impartial love to people. So the question is, how is my life, my presence, making a difference for the kingdom of God wherever I go? Is it making a difference? And if not, how can I start living in such a way that people experience the love of God where I am and be shown toward God where I am? So a couple of practical things I want us to start doing this week. Start praying for your enemies and blessing them. We all have people that are kind of antagonistic toward us. Start praying for them. Start blessing them. If you curse them, how are they going to find Jesus? Let's bless them so that even though they are enemies of ours, that they might find Jesus and hopefully change this side of life, the grave already. But if, even if not, at least one day we'll be able to figure it out and sort it out in heaven when we realize what it all was about. Start unconditionally loving people who don't deserve it. Start unconditionally loving people who don't deserve it. Especially people that won't benefit you for doing it. And then the last thing I want to I want to just encourage everyone here is start walking in a discipleship journey with somebody. See, part of being a disciple is following Jesus and fishing for men. And if that's something that you don't know how to do, then this is what I believe God has sent you here for, so that you can become part of a church family that raises people up, that disciples people into becoming Christ's hands and feet in their community, in their workplace, in their social circles, uh, etc., but it requires you to step into the growth process that we're running with here. It requires you to say, okay, I'm going to go in and become a part of what this place is doing and where it's leading and where it's growing me so that I can live impartially, unconditionally loving people around me, following in Jesus' footsteps, seeking and saving the lost, making disciples. There's a world out there that's so hurting, so confused, and we have so many answers to give, so much freedom and victory to offer. And my prayer is that each and every one of us will live with that outward, generous mentality to every single person that God has placed next to us or close to us. And even for those that are afar off that we have anger towards, or that have hurt us, or in the past have hurt us, disappointed us. That we would unconditionally forgive and start loving them through prayer, 
through blessing them, through speaking God's favor over them, that they might come to a saving knowledge of Him as well. If we do that, we will learn to not live with partiality. And so we will bring great, great honor to our Lord and Savior. And we will also learn and become victorious and mature as Christian followers of Christ. Amen. Let's all stand together and pray about this. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of James. Thank you for how James leads us to an introspective journey of discovering, even by surprising means, some of the places in our hearts that we still harbor partiality. Father, we want to lay that down at your feet today. Thank you for loving us. Lord, thank you for not being partial and forgetting us. Thank you for not being partial and ring-fencing your salvation only to certain people, certain groups. Thank you for throwing the gates wide open to each and every one who would dare believe and put their trust in you. Thank you, Jesus. Now help us, God, to live with that same mentality. Help us not to keep our generosity for certain groups and certain people. Help us not to keep our prayers for certain groups and certain people. Help us not to keep our love for certain groups and certain people. Help us, Father, to live from the never uh, exhaustible well of love so that we can evermore be pouring love onto people around us. Father, we want to glorify you by living out your love to people in the world and showing our faith is real through people experiencing your goodness through us. Even those, Father, especially those who don't have the means to give back or benefit us. Lord, we submit our hearts to you. When I said earlier, the demons believe in God, but they don't submit to Him, I feel like somebody here felt, well, I believe in God, but I haven't submitted to Him. I believe God wants you to, uh, to make that decision, to allow Him to become the Lord of your life, to lay down your crown, and to let Him be the King of your life. If that's you, you just need to right now where you are, seriously talk to God. Nothing I do for you, this church does for you, will help until you have decided to submit to God. It's the first step of becoming a follower of Christ. Lord, we give you our hearts. We give you our hearts, Lord God. Father, we come under your teaching. We come under your word. 
We pray that your glory might impress your standards on us, God, your image, your identity, your way of doing things and thinking about things. Come, Holy Spirit. Let us not leave here unchanged. Show us the things that we need to rectify, the thinking patterns we need to reject, opinions we need to change. Only you can motivate us to do this, Holy Spirit. Only you can bring conviction. But Lord, we want to decide today to come under your leadership completely. Fully submit to you. Lead us and guide us. Make us and mold us as you wish, Lord. We are yours. We are yours. We are yours. Father, I pray that you speak to us in the week as we encounter different people to remind us about their value. Show us how you see them and how much you love them. We pray this in Jesus' name today. Amen.